Okay, so then we're going to be uh, looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, as uh, James explained to us, or mentioned to us a little bit earlier. Um, It's uh, quite a long book. Uh, It's in the New Testament of the Bible. Uh, We're going to be looking at it in sections of about six to nine sessions throughout the course, probably of about a year at different times. Uh, We'll be taking breaks from it. It's uh, a letter that was written by one of the leaders of the early church, uh, the Apostle Paul, to a church in a particular city, a particular place. The name of the city is called Corinth. Uh, That's why they're called Corinthians, the people that live there. And it's a letter to those people. It's written within 25 years or a little bit more of the resurrection of Jesus. It's very early in the life of the church. Uh, What kind of people was it written to? What can we uh, find out about them? What do we know about Corinth? Well, it was a very key city in the ancient world. We don't know exactly how many people lived there, maybe about 250,000. Could have been about the size of Southampton, but we don't really know for sure. It was a city with a, a fine history. It actually went back long into the days of ancient Greece, before the Romans, and it was very key. Uh, It had political power during that time. Uh, And perhaps because of that, the Romans destroyed it completely in uh, 140 BC, just flattened it, raised it to the ground, removed it from the face of the map totally. And then about 100 years later, uh, Julius Caesar thought it might be good to rebuild the city, because as we'll see in a minute, it was in a very key location. And it became a Roman colony, a little bit of Rome kind of planted into Greece. Uh, Roman colonies were very handy, because um, if you'd been in the Roman army, when you left the army, you became a freedman. You you had a special status. You weren't very high. You were about one or two steps above a slave in the Roman Empire. Uh, And uh, you had the right to live in the Roman kind of colony. And there wasn't a lot of room for them in Rome. And uh, the empire didn't want a load of riffraff around Rome too much. So they set up these various colonies around the place. And Corinth was one of them. So it was a good place to start a new life when you retired from the army. It was a key site for commerce and trade. Uh, There was a lot of money to be made. I don't know whether you can see that clearly. Uh, Corinth is there um, on, you know, in that little bit that hangs down in Greece. That's the the part of the ancient world. You can see from the map that it's in a very key point. There's a little isthmus that that goes on. Here's a shot from NASA. That'll show you it. Um, You can see Athens there and you can see Corinth. And there's a very narrow channel. Uh, or a very narrow strip of land, rather, between the two. And Corinth and another city were, were sitting there right at that kind of key part of, the, uh, uh, of where there was a port. There's a canal there now. Maybe some of you have been there. Maybe you've been on a cruise to Corinth. I don't know. But if you have, you can tell us afterwards. Um, so, so it was very important in trade terms. And so it became very prosperous again quite quickly. It was a, a great centre for sport, Um, You've heard of the Olympic Games. Well, the Corinthian Games, the games around that isthmus there uh, and that little kind of peninsula were really only second, you know, to the Olympic Games of the time. So, you know, it was quite quite an important place, really. There was a great deal of pagan worship going on there. Uh, The city was dominated by a, a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And uh, uh, within the temple, there were all these prostitutes that, that kind of the idea of how you worship the goddess of love was by kind of doing it, as it were. And there were prostitutes available for that. Uh, and they used to kind of go out into the city uh, of, of an evening, so we're told by some sources of the time. 
It was so well known for sexual freedom that there was a, 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 the word Corinthianize. If you said to someone, they're a bit of a Corinthianizer, or they're going out for a bit of Corinthianizing, what it meant is that they were going out really for sexual promiscuity. I'm trying to think of a parallel in Britain. We talk about being sent to Coventry, but that's not quite the same. I was thinking about, you know, <laughs> what is it? <laughs> There's that whole thing about Essex, but I thought I'd better not mention that. <laughs> But yeah, anyway, you know the idea that it, it had that kind of reputation. That's what it was. Uh, Gordon Fee, a great, has written a great commentary uh, on, the, on the, the book of Corinthians. He says, Corinth, he's an American, was at once and the same time the New York, the Los Angeles, and the Las Vegas of the ancient world. It managed to kind of join all those characteristics up together. So how on earth then did a church get started in Corinth? We read about it in Acts 18. I won't go there now, but you can look at that later. Paul the Apostle arrives in Corinth from Athens. He's just had quite a tough time there. He's on his own. He's moved out of Athens. He's been preaching the good news there. And a few people have been interested. He's had some important, interesting encounters with the intellectuals, if you remember, in Acts 17, Acts 18. Then, uh, while he's in Corinth, he meets a married couple. He gets to know Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, they're tent makers. He joins their business. Remember, we thought about them a few weeks ago. And uh, then a bit later, Timothy and Silas join him from Athens. And, and they start to talk about Jesus to the Jewish community in Corinth. And uh, that leads to some conversions, as well as a court case and almost a riot. You can read about that in Acts 18 as well. It was, a, it was a, quite a tough place. In fact, it was so tough that while he was there, we read in the book of Acts, Paul had a vision one night. He had a vision of Jesus. He saw Jesus standing there. Do you know what Jesus said to him? Do you remember that? Don't be afraid, Paul. Now, why do you think Jesus said that to Paul? Probably not because he wasn't feeling afraid, but because he was. It was a tough place to be. Paul was afraid, Jesus reassures him. That was the kind of background to it. And Paul is there for quite a long time, at least 18 months or so. The church gets going, he moves on to other places, he later visits, and a number of uh, letters get written uh, to Corinth. And there are, uh, we've got some of them as 1 and 2 Corinthians in our Bible. And these letters give us a window into a young church needing to grow up, a church that were facing all kinds of difficulties. If you read through the book of Corinthians, just scan it, you'll see the kind of stuff that they had to deal with in their church. It wasn't exactly, I suppose, if you're looking for a great church to go to, uh, you know, you may not pick the church at Corinth, given some of the stuff that was going on in the church. People getting drunk at communion, for example. One, one bloke had moved in and was kind of shacked up with his, his mother or mother-in-law or, or, or kind of close, incestuous relationship. You know, and the church really proud of that. Yeah, all kinds of quite, quite difficult stuff, quite weird stuff going on in, uh, that Paul has to write about. But two things come across in these letters. Here's the first thing. Paul is straightening out their thinking. He's getting their heads right about what it's going to mean to be a follower of Jesus in that tough place. He's helping them get their their lives sorted out as well. And that's very helpful for us. God speaks to to them through Paul. God speaks to us too. And also through this letter and the other letter to Corinthians as well, we see the way that Paul is involved in ministry. How Paul helps other people to grow as believers. 
He's very relational about it. He loves them. He's affected by how they're getting on. It matters to him. He's not just, you know, giving lectures on, you know, the Bible. He's really in there with them. He loves them. He cares about them. When When they're struggling, he hurts, you know. And you see this right through these two letters. And it's a painful process. And that is something that we can learn from. It matters to Paul because he's so sure, as we shall see, that Jesus has given him this task to be an apostle uh, and to give, do this job, it really matters. That's what Christian ministry can be like. Now, okay, we've rushed through that. What can we learn from this? What is the relevance of all of this stuff to us? Well, I can think of three ways. Here's the first one. We live in a similar kind of world to the Corinthians. The parallels will be obvious as we go through. There are some striking similarities. Secondly, their journey with Jesus, their discipleship, was not unlike ours, partly because of the world that we're living in. Certainly the journey they were on will be like some of our journeys, and, and certainly like the journeys of perhaps people who will join our church in the future as they come to know Jesus out of non-Christian, non-religious backgrounds. Most of the people in the church were from non-religious backgrounds. They, they weren't ex-Jews. They were people, they were full-on worshippers of Aphrodite just the, the week before or the day before they start to follow Jesus. And so they had this journey to make with all kinds of stuff in their lives and stuff in their heads uh, that was tough and had to be dealt with and they had to kind of be encouraged and nurtured along the way. And I hope and pray that that may be more the experience of more people who come to this church as other churches in our city. Because if we're not reaching irreligious people, well, we might as well go back home. We're just wasting our time. So discipleship is the same. And thirdly, and and this is connected to it, their culture was powerful and moulded them. And our culture is powerful in moulding us too. You know, you may have noticed, but out there in the wider world they believe different things to what followers of Jesus believe. Even though we're in a Christian country, you know, there's a great fight on to try and retain these Christian values. Uh, The secular world does not believe the same kind of stuff. It was like that then, and it affected their church. So stuff like the celebrity culture, sexual freedom, the quest for all kinds of special spiritualities, or new kinds of knowledge, or new ways of having power, all those kind of things were were out there in their culture, they are out there in our culture, and they were affecting them. Stuff from their old way of life affected the Corinthians. Listen to this, this comes from the letter. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, those in uh, homosexual lifestyles, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will will inherit the kingdom of God. And there was a time, it may be some of us are thinking that today as well, when if you read that in a church, people would be thinking, yeah, here, here. (laughs) There's no room for any of those people in the kingdom of God. And there's not much room. We don't really want them in our church either. That's how churches would have thought. Maybe you think that. Look what Paul says. And that's what some of you were. That was what they were bringing in from their old ways of living, their old lifestyles. 
But he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, and so on. So what Paul is doing is really helping them to grow up. And maybe we need that kind of help too. Maybe we can learn from Paul about how we can help each other to grow up in our faith. Let's read then the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians 1. It's on page 1144. Verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. It's quite a beginning, isn't it? You wouldn't guess, if that was all we had of 1 Corinthians, you'd think, well, they're a good church. You'd have no idea that there were any issues, any problems, any concerns of any kind about them. And Paul starts off reminding them of their foundations. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. They're in trouble, sure, but there's something that they can get back to. They can get back from trouble back onto their foundations. It's a bit like, you know the story of the prodigal son? Remember the story Jesus told that boy who'd run away from his father and everything? What happened? How did he start the way back? He remembered he had a father. He remembered where he'd come from. He remembered the kind of foundations of everything. And once he remembered that, he got back. He started home again. And in a way, this is what Paul is doing with these uh, believers in Corinth. He's saying, look, get back to your foundations because there is a way back from the trouble you're in. And he starts reminding them of these foundations. He takes them back to two things. Firstly, in verses 1 to 3, he takes them back to God's great purposes for them. And then in verses 4 to 9, he talks of God's activity among them, what God had been doing in their lives. I'm going to look at those together now. Firstly then, firstly, a foundation of God's purposes for them in verses 1 to 3. Do you see what he calls them right there at the beginning in verse 2? He calls them the church of God in Corinth. They're not some collection of people vaguely got together. They're God's people. They are God's church. The idea of the word there of church is, is this gathered community, these people gathered together, formed into a group, but not just by random, not just by what they decided to do, but by God himself. God is the one who's got them together. They're God's church. That's really important. And it's, Paul is saying right at the beginning, you belong to God. God's, you're God's church. He's the one who got you together. And that's important. It's important for us, isn't it, to get that. It's not our church to mess with. 
It's not just a place for us to do our thing. It's God's gathered people. It's not some kind of optional thing that we may or may not kind of get involved in one way or another. It's God's gathered people. The phrase is used in the Old Testament Greek version of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. They were gathered together by God. The church of God at Corinth. We're the church of God. Planted, Paul says, by, as a, for the Corinthians, as an apostle by the will of God, he says in verse 1. It's the first thing. He says, get back to your foundations. You're not any old church. You're God's church. Okay, the church of God. Quickly, moving on. What else does he says? He says they're sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, what does sanctified mean? Wearing this jacket today. Yesterday, I sanctified it. That's not why I'm wearing it. Well, it's partly is it. What did I do to sanctify it? Well, what I did, it was in the uh, wardrobe, and I took it out of the wardrobe, and I set it on one side, because I was going to wear it last night to the posh event, and I thought I'd better wear something a bit smarter than I usually wear. And I set it on one side, not because I always do that, because I'm not that kind of person, but because this is a bit, I had to iron this one, because it gets all really crumpled, you see. Well, did I? I? I set it on one side to be used for a purpose. That's exactly what sanctification means. When Paul says you're sanctified in Christ Jesus, it means that we are people who, because of our connection with Jesus, have been kind of put on one side, kind of made available for God, for a special purpose for him. Because of Jesus, this community has been set aside for God, to be holy for him. Holy means just set aside for God to use. You know, how you live and all that comes out of it, but the, the foundation is that we belong to God. We're God's church. We've been sanctified. We've been put on one side in Christ Jesus because of Jesus and because of our connection with him. And Paul says we're called to be holy. You're to be holy. Your lives are to reflect what God's done, who you belong to. He says you're in Christ Jesus. You belong to him. God has made you special because of your relationship with Jesus. God has been involved in your coming to know him. It's his purposes, it's his love, it's his good news. Paul is saying these are the foundations, what God has done for you. Get back to your foundations. But he says something else as well. Thirdly, <clears throat> he says together with others. That's interesting, isn't it? There, verse 3, no, verse 2 rather, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and yours. All those who call on the name of the Lord are with us in this. And that's interesting as well because this calling, this being set aside by God, this, this kind of um, way in which he's involved in us coming to him, that's just one side of the story. It's not just some kind of automated process, this kind of uh, spiritually automated irresistible selection, which means that you be become a believer. No, there's a response. We respond. We call on the name of the Lord Jesus. We respond to his good news. If you haven't done that yet, I encourage you to do that, to say, Lord, yeah, I want to respond. I want to believe your good news. I want you to take my life. We respond to the gospel. We say yes. And, and when we do that, we discover we're part of something much bigger than just our community. We're part of God's gathered people. Everywhere. 
already it's global. It's great that you know, we, we're involved in Canada and Wycliffe Bible translators all over the world and with Heather in the Ocean Islands, Indian Ocean Islands and so on. And Paul is saying at this stage, right in the beginning point of Christianity, he had this idea that it was ev- not just the community that were the Corinthians, but all those communities everywhere in the ancient world who called on the name of Jesus, they were somehow connected together. That's really exciting. So do we realise that we are a community? Do we realise who we are, rather, as a community of God's people? Do we realise our identity in Jesus Christ, that we've been formed by God, that we belong to him? We're to be his holy people. It's part of what he wants for us. And whatever kind of mess you might be in, or I might be in, we can get back onto that foundation, because that's what he's done for us. So if you're denying your spiritual identity when you do that thing, or when you think in that particular way, or I do, or when I treat other people in that way, if I'm denying everything that God has done, my spiritual identity, well, I can get back to it. I need to get back to who I am and start living in the way God's called me to live as a believer. Because of God's great purposes, that great foundation. So that's the first thing. Let's move on to the second foundation. And that's in verses 3 to 9. The foundation of God's grace, God's activity among them. Paul begins to talk in verse 4 to 9 about their experience of coming to know Jesus when he was with them. Now, there are, you know, so many reasons why Paul could be disappointed, aren't there, when he wrote this letter. All the stuff he was going to be talking about later on. I mean, if I was him, I'd have been in the basement. Believe me, I don't think I could have written the letter. Knowing what was happening in the church, I'd be thinking, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm so disappointed. But he isn't, is he? He's starting with his overflow of praise to God. He's talking about Jesus all the time. He's like someone who, you know, when, when you meet somebody and you begin to fall in love with them, all your friends suddenly notice you keep mentioning their name, dropping their name into this conversation and that. And Paul's been talking about Jesus nine times in these nine verses. He's talked about Christ Jesus and Jesus and all that Jesus has done. And Jesus, 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 this. Paul is focused on Jesus. He's thankful because he's seen God at work among them because of Jesus. They've experienced God's grace God's help, God's working in Christ Jesus. And he reminds them of what Jesus has brought into their experience. So in verse 6, verse 5 and 6, he talks about how our testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. God had done things. God had confirmed things. And he says God is still at work among you. And Paul is genuinely thankful. He saw that God worked. When he told them about Jesus, God did things too. And he knew that God had been at work in their experience. And he remembers that. And he's kind of connecting them with that too. It's amazing, really. Despite everything, Paul is so thankful for what he saw God do among them. I think so, uh, he, he's not saying, some of the uh, commentators, some of the uh, scholars say, he must be being sarcastic here, you know, because he refers to spiritual gifts, and that's one of the things they're really, you know, in trouble about. But he's not being sarcastic, he's genuinely grateful. 
Because he sees that what they're experiencing of God, although they've got it wrong, although they've got it messed up in different ways, they're still, God is still at work among them. There's kind of hope for them. Do you ever get disappointed? Do you get disappointed with yourself? I do. With other people? Mm. Other Christians? Maybe your home group sometimes? Or the way things work out in the church? I sometimes get disappointed about that. We've all been there, haven't we? The danger is that that leads us to be disappointed with God, doesn't it? That's the danger. Paul, he starts his thinking not about the the Corinthian Christians and all their troubles. He starts his thinking about Jesus. And he gets that kind of straight in his head about what Jesus has done for them in in his purposes right back past their salvation and also in what Jesus has done for them in the church when he was there and it was being formed. And he's thankful. Perhaps that's the answer. He remembers how God confirms the message. He says you've been enriched in every way. He says you've got words and you've got knowledge. Two key words going to come up later. Buzzwords for the Corinthians. He sees that God was at work in them. Although they've gone a bit off track in those very areas. Logos and Gnosis, if you're Greek scholars. They're kind of buzzwords around the time. Paul is saying, I'm not going to avoid those. I'm not going to blow you out from them. I can see God is kind of, yeah, you're responding to God in those areas. That Even the stuff that you've gone off on is from God. That's okay, we'll get there in the end. He sees God's at work with them. But it is important, actually, it is very interesting that he talks about God enriching them with these gifts because our testimony about Christ was confirmed. You see, we will see later that the Corinthians were having all kinds of wild experiences, spiritual experiences and genuine spurious, etc., etc. Paul is saying, look, don't, cut, don't disconnect, don't decouple your desire for spiritual experience with the testimony, the message about Jesus. That's quite important. But the thing he's saying, God did things. He confirmed it. God uh, confirmed the message about Christ. And then he goes on to tell them, going to have to go really quick. He goes on to say an amazing thing in verse 7. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He says them that, that he tells them that they've got all that they need as they wait for the next big salvation event, the end of time. Wasn't yesterday? Don't know when it was going to be. Paul is saying, We wait when Jesus will be revealed. We'll either be dead and raised or we'll be alive and meet him. But whenever it's going to be, that's the next big deal as far as salvation history is concerned. But Paul is telling them that till then, Jesus is enough for them. That's what he's saying. You've got enough in Jesus. You have what they need, they have what they need. He's telling them that Jesus will be at work in and through your community. It's that foundation that will help them get back on track again. Obviously not every one of them is going to have every gift, but Paul is saying as a community, all that you need is there in Jesus at work in your community, your church community. It's a remarkable approach to a, a, remarkable approach to a struggling church, isn't it? And we need to get hold of this too, foundational, that that God is actually among us and actually working among us. He confirms things, the message about Christ he confirms in our lives. He will be giving spiritual gifts, we will be enriched in every way, we have all that we need. Whether we're off track or on track, 
we can go forward with him. Back on track if we're off track. And together uh, on track if we are. You know what I mean. I'm rushing and improvising. That's not so good. Right. So he looks back at the foundation of God's purposes and then looks at how God's grace is at work among them. Then he looks forward, verses 8 and 9. He says that Jesus will keep you strong to the end. He will keep you strong to the end. He will get you there. He's actually saying, that word, keep you strong to the end, is the same word as confirming. He's saying, just as Jesus confirmed the good news when you became believers and as work among you, in the same way he will continue to keep you firm, to keep you strong, to watch over you till the end. And he calls the end the day of Christ. It's Jesus' day. He's in charge on that day. He knows. He's the one. We can trust him. So how can Paul be so confident about that? Because he says God is faithful. That's what he says there. God, verse 9, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. God is faithful. And he's called you into this relationship with Jesus. His fellowship. It was great when Lord of the Rings brought that word back into the English language. Fellowship. Relationship. Tied together for a purpose. He says, God has called you into that relationship with Jesus Christ. And God will keep you to the end of the journey. Whatever the Corinthians' failures, as Paul writes to them, as God's word comes to them, they're called to get back onto the foundations again. To get their lives in line with all that God has done and is doing for them in Jesus It's the same for us. We need to realise our identity in Christ. It's foundational. We need to know that God will work in our community, that we can live our lives together and individually in connection with Jesus. And we need to know too that God is faithful as we follow, no matter how messed up we may be, how confused we may be, how sinful and misguided we may be, because of the foundations we can get back onto the right place with him. And we can get back there and go with him, knowing his faithfulness to the very end, because he will change us. He will bring us to to the day of Christ. Let's go with that. Let's go with him. James.